Section two of Our Old Home. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Our Old Home by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Section two Consular Experiences. I recollect another case of a more ridiculous order, but still with the foolish kind of pathos entangled in it, which impresses me now more forcibly than it did at the moment. One day a queer, stupid, good-natured, fat-faced individual came into my private room, dressed in a sky-blue cutaway coat and mixed trousers, both garments worn and shabby, and rather too small for his overgrown bulk. After a little preliminary talk, he turned out to be a country shopkeeper, from Connecticut, I think, who had left a flourishing business, and come over to England purposely and solely to have an interview with the Queen. Some years before he had named his two children, one for Her Majesty and the other for Prince Albert, and had transmitted photographs of the little people, as well as of his wife and himself, to the illustrious godmother. The Queen had gratefully acknowledged the favor in a letter under the hand of her private secretary. Now the shopkeeper, like a great many other Americans, had long cherished a fantastic notion that he was one of the rightful heirs of a rich English estate, and on the strength of Her Majesty's letter and the hopes of royal patronage which it inspired, he had shut up his little country store and come over to claim his inheritance. On the voyage a German fellow-passenger had relieved him of his money on pretense of getting it favorably exchanged, and had disappeared immediately on the ship's arrival, so that the poor fellow was compelled to pawn all his clothes except the remarkably shabby ones in which I beheld him, and in which, as he himself hinted, with a melancholy yet good-natured smile, he did not look altogether fit to see the Queen. I agreed with him that the bobtailed coat and mixed trousers constituted a very odd-looking court dress, and suggested that it was doubtless his present purpose to get back to Connecticut as fast as possible. But no! The resolve to see the Queen was as strong in him as ever, and it was marvelous the pertinacity with which he clung to it amid raggedness and starvation, and the earnestness of his supplication that I would supply him with funds for a suitable appearance at Windsor Castle. I never had so satisfactory a perception of a complete booby before in my life, and it caused me to feel kindly towards him, and yet impatient and exasperated on behalf of common sense, which could not possibly tolerate that such an unimaginable donkey should exist. I laid his absurdity before him in the very plainest terms, but without either exciting his anger or shaking his resolution. "'Oh, my dear man,' quoth he, with good-natured, placid, simple, and tearful stubbornness, "'if you could but enter into my feelings, and see the matter from beginning to end as I see it!' To confess the truth, I have since felt that I was hard-hearted to the poor simpleton, and that there was more weight in his remonstrance than I chose to be sensible of at the time, for, like many men who have been in the habit of making playthings or tools of their imagination and sensibility, I was too rigidly tenacious of what was reasonable in the affairs of real life. And even absurdity has its rights when, as in this case, it has absorbed a human being's entire nature and purposes. 
I ought to have transmitted him to Mr. Buchanan in London, who, being a good-natured old gentleman, and anxious just then, to gratify the universal Yankee nation, might, for the joke's sake, have got him admittance to the Queen, who had fairly laid herself open to his visit, and has received hundreds of our countrymen on infinitely slighter grounds. But I was inexorable, being turned to flint by the insufferable proximity of a fool, and refused to interfere with his business in any way except to procure him a passage home. I can see his face of mild, ridiculous despair at this moment, and appreciate, better than I could then, how awfully cruel he must have felt my obduracy to be. For years and years the idea of an interview with Queen Victoria had haunted his poor foolish mind, and now, when he really stood on English ground, and the palace door was hanging ajar for him, he was expected to turn back, a penniless and bamboozled simpleton, merely because an iron-hearted consul refused to lend him thirty shillings, so low had his demand ultimately sunk, to buy a second-class ticket on the rail for London. He visited the consulate several times afterwards, subsisting on a pittance that I allowed him in the hope of gradually starving him back to Connecticut, assailing me with the old petition at every opportunity, looking shabbier at every visit, but still thoroughly good-tempered, mildly stubborn, and smiling through his tears, not without a perception of the ludicrousness of his own position. Finally he disappeared altogether, and whither he had wandered, and whether he ever saw the Queen, or wasted quite away in the endeavour, I never knew. But I remember unfolding the times about that period, with a daily dread of reading an account of a ragged Yankee's attempt to steal into Buckingham Palace, and how he smiled tearfully at his captors, and besought them to introduce him to Her Majesty. I submit to Mr. Secretary Seward that he ought to make diplomatic remonstrances to the British Ministry, and require them to take such order that the Queen shall not any longer bewilder the wits of our poor compatriots by responding to their epistles and thanking them for their photographs. One circumstance in the foregoing incident, I mean the unhappy storekeeper's notion of establishing his claim to an English estate, was common to a great many other applications, personal or by letter, with which I was favoured by my countrymen. The cause of this peculiar insanity lies deep in the Anglo-American heart. After all these bloody wars and vindictive animosities, we still have an unspeakable yearning towards England. When our forefathers left the old home, they pulled up many of their roots, but trailed along with them others, which were never snapped asunder by the tug of such a lengthening distance, nor have been torn out of the original soil by the violence of subsequent struggles, nor severed by the edge of the sword. Even so late as these days, they remain entangled with our heart-strings, and might often have influenced our national cause like the tiller-ropes of a ship, if the rough grip of England had been capable of managing so sensitive a kind of machinery. It has required nothing less than the boorishness, the stolidity, the self-sufficiency, the contemptuous jealousy, the half-sagacity, invariably blind of one eye and often distorted of the other, that characterize this strange people to compel us to be a great nation in our own right, instead of continuing virtually, if not in name, a province of their small island. 
What pains did they take to shake us off, and have ever since taken to keep us wide apart from them? It might seem their folly, but was really their fate, or rather the providence of God, who has doubtless a work for us to do, in which the massive materiality of the English character would have been too ponderous a dead weight upon our progress. And besides, if England had been wise enough to twine our new vigor round her ancient strength, her power would have been too firmly established ever to yield, in its due season, to the otherwise immutable law of imperial vicissitude. The earth might then have beheld the intolerable spectacle of a sovereignty and institutions imperfect but indestructible. Nationally, there has ceased to be any peril of so inauspicious and yet outwardly attractive an amalgamation. But as an individual, the American is often conscious of the deep-rooted sympathies that belong more fitly to times gone by, and feels a blind, pathetic tendency to wander back again, which makes itself evident in such wild dreams as I have alluded to above about English inheritances. A mere coincidence of names, the Yankee one perhaps having been assumed by legislative permission, a supposititious pedigree, a silver mug on which an anciently engraved coat of arms has been half scrubbed out, a seal with an uncertain crest, an old yellow letter or document in faded ink, the more scantily legible the better, rubbish of this kind found in a neglected drawer has been potent enough to turn the brain of many an honest republican especially if assisted by an advertisement for lost heirs cut out of a british newspaper there is no estimating or believing till we come into a position to know it what foolery lurks latent in the breasts of very sensible people remembering such sober extravagances I should not be at all surprised to find that I am myself guilty of some unsuspected absurdity that may appear to me the most substantial trait in my character. I might fill many pages with instances of this diseased American appetite for English soil. A respectable-looking woman, well advanced in life, of sour aspect, exceedingly homely, but decidedly New Englandish in figure and manners, came to my office with a great bundle of documents, at the very first glimpse of which I apprehended something terrible. Nor was I mistaken. The bundle contained evidences of her indubitable claim to the site on which Castle Street, the Town Hall, the Exchange, and all the principal business part of Liverpool have long been situated, and with considerable peremptoriness the good lady signified her expectation that I should take charge of her suit, and prosecute it to judgment, not, however, on the equitable condition of receiving half the value of the property recovered, which, in case of complete success, would have made both of us ten or twenty-fold millionaires, but without recompense or reimbursement of legal expenses, solely as an incident of my official duty. Another time came two ladies, bearing a letter of emphatic introduction from His Excellency the Governor of their native state, who testified in most satisfactory terms to their social respectability. They were claimants of a great estate in Cheshire, and announced themselves as blood relatives of Queen Victoria, a point, however, which they deemed it expedient to keep in the background until their territorial rights should be established, 
apprehending that the Lord High Chancellor might otherwise be less likely to come to a fair decision in respect to them, from a probable disinclination to admit new members into the royal kin. Upon my honor, I imagine that they had an eye to the possibility of the eventual succession of one or both of them to the crown of Great Britain through superiority of title over the Brunswick line, although being maiden ladies, like their predecessor Elizabeth, they could hardly have hoped to establish a lasting dynasty upon the throne. It proves, I trust, a certain disinterestedness on my part, that, encountering them thus in the dawn of their fortunes, I forbore to put in a plea for a future dukedom. Another visitor of the same class was a gentleman of refined manners, handsome figure, and remarkably intellectual aspect. Like many men of an adventurous caste, he had so quiet a deportment, and such an apparent disinclination to general sociability, that you would have fancied him moving always along some peaceful and secluded walk of life. Yet, literally from his first hour, he had been tossed upon the surges of a most varied and tumultuous existence, having been born at sea of American parentage, but on board of a Spanish vessel, and spending many of the subsequent years in voyages, travels, and outlandish incidents and vicissitudes, which, methought, had hardly been paralleled since the days of Gulliver or Defoe. When his dignified reserve was overcome, he had the faculty of narrating these adventures with wonderful eloquence, working up his descriptive sketches with such intuitive perception of the picturesque points that the whole was thrown forward with a positively elusive effect, like matters of your own visual experience. In fact, they were so admirably done that I could never more than half believe them, because the genuine affairs of life are not apt to transact themselves so artistically. Many of his scenes were laid in the east and among those seldom-visited archipelagos of the Indian Ocean, so that there was an oriental fragrance breathing through his talk and an odor of the spice islands still lingering in his garments. He had much to say of the delightful qualities of the Malay pirates, who, indeed, carry on a predatory warfare against the ships of all civilized nations, and cut every Christian throat among their prisoners, but, except for the deeds of that character, which are the rule and habit of their life, and matter of religion and conscience with them, they are gentle-natured people, of primitive innocence and integrity. But his best story was about a race of men, if men they were, who seemed so fully to realize Swift's wicked fable of the Yahoos that my friend was much exercised with psychological speculations whether or no they had any souls. They dwelt in the wilds of Ceylon, like other savage beasts, hairy and spotted with tufts of fur, filthy, shameless, weaponless, though warlike in their individual bent, toolless, houseless, languageless, except for a few guttural sounds hideously dissonant, whereby they held some rudest kind of communication among themselves. They lacked both memory and foresight, and were wholly destitute of government, social institutions, or law or rulership of any description, except the immediate tyranny of the strongest, radically untamable, moreover, save that the people of the country managed to subject a few of the less ferocious and stupid ones to outdoor servitude among their other cattle. 
They were beastly in almost all their attributes, so that to such a degree that the observer, losing sight of any link betwixt them and manhood, could generally witness their brutalities without greater horror than at those of some disagreeable quadruped in a menagerie. And yet, at times, comparing what were the lowest general traits in his own race with what was highest in these abominable monsters, he found a ghastly similitude that half compelled him to recognize them as human brethren. After these Gulliverian researches, my agreeable acquaintance had fallen under the ban of the Dutch government, and had suffered, this at least being matter of fact, nearly two years' imprisonment, with confiscation of a large amount of property, for which Mr. Belmont, our minister at The Hague, had just made a peremptory demand of reimbursement and damages. Meanwhile, since arriving in England on his way to the United States, he had been providentially led to inquire into the circumstances of his birth on shipboard, and had discovered that not himself alone, but another baby had come into the world during the same voyage of the prolific vessel, and that there were almost irrefragable reasons for believing that these two children had been assigned to the wrong mothers. Many reminiscences of his early days confirmed him in the idea that his nominal parents were aware of the exchange. The family to which he felt authorized to attribute his lineage was that of a nobleman in the picture-gallery of whose country seat, whence, if I mistake not, our adventurous friend had just returned, he had discovered a portrait bearing a striking resemblance to himself. As soon as he should have reported the outrageous action of the Dutch government to President Pierce and the Secretary of State, and recovered the confiscated property, he purposed to return to England and establish his claim to the nobleman's title and estate. I had accepted his oriental fantasies, which, indeed, to do him justice, have been recorded by scientific societies among the genuine phenomena of natural history, not as matters of indubitable credence, but as allowable specimens of an imaginative traveller's vivid colouring and rich embroidery on the coarse texture and dull neutral tints of truth." the English romance was among the latest communications that he entrusted to my private ear, and as soon as I heard the first chapter, so wonderfully akin to what I might have wrought out of my own head, not unpractised in such figments, I began to repent having made myself responsible for the future nobleman's passage homeward in the next Collins steamer. Nevertheless, should his English rent-roll fall a little behindhand, his Dutch claim for a hundred thousand dollars was certainly in the hands of our government, and might at least be valuable to the extent of thirty pounds, which I had engaged to pay on his behalf. But I have reason to fear that his Dutch riches turned out to be Dutch gilt, or fairy gold, and his English country seat a mere castle in the air, which I exceedingly regret, for he was a delightful companion, and a very gentlemanly man." A consul, in his position of universal responsibility, the general adviser and helper, sometimes finds himself compelled to assume the guardianship of personages who, in their own sphere, are supposed capable of superintending the highest interests of whole communities. An elderly Irishman, a naturalized citizen, once put the desire and expectation of all our penniless vagabonds into a very suitable phrase, 
by pathetically entreating me to be a father to him, and, simple as I sit scribbling here, I have acted a father's part not only by scores of such unthrifty old children as himself, but by a progeny of far loftier pretensions. It may be well for persons who are conscious of any radical weakness in their character, any besetting sin, any unlawful propensity, any unhallowed impulse which, while surrounded with the manifold restraints that protect a man from that treacherous and lifelong enemy, his lower self, in the circle of society where he is at home, they may have succeeded in keeping under the lock and key of strictest propriety. It may be well for them, before seeking the perilous freedom of a distant land, released from the watchful eyes of neighborhoods and coteries, lightened of that wearisome burden and immaculate name, and blissfully obscure after years of local prominence, it may be well for such individuals to know that when they set foot on a foreign shore, the long-imprisoned evil, scenting a wild license in the unaccustomed atmosphere, is apt to grow riotous in its iron cage. It rattles the rusty barriers with gigantic turbulence, and if there be an infirm joint anywhere in the framework, it breaks madly forth, compressing the mischief of a lifetime into a little space. A parcel of letters had been accumulating at the consulate for two or three weeks, directed to a certain doctor of divinity, who had left America by a sailing packet and was still upon the sea. In due time the vessel arrived, and the reverend doctor paid me a visit. He was a fine-looking middle-aged gentleman, a perfect model of clerical propriety, scholar-like, yet with the air of a man of the world rather than a student, though overspread with the graceful sanctity of a popular metropolitan divine, a part of whose duty it might be to exemplify the natural accordance between Christianity and good breeding. He seemed a little excited, as an American is apt to be on first arriving in England, but conversed with intelligence as well as animation, making himself so agreeable that his visit stood out in considerable relief from the monotony of my daily commonplace. As I learned from authentic sources, he was somewhat distinguished in his own region for fervor and eloquence in the pulpit, but was now compelled to relinquish it temporarily for the purpose of renovating his impaired health by an extensive tour in Europe. Promising to dine with me, he took up his bundle of letters and went away. The doctor, however, failed to make his appearance at dinner-time, or to apologize the next day for his absence, and in the course of a day or two more I forgot all about him, concluding that he must have set forth on his continental travels, the plan of which he had sketched out at our interview. But by and by I received a call from the master of the vessel in which he had arrived. He was in some alarm about his passenger, whose luggage remained on shipboard, but of whom nothing had been heard or seen since the moment of his departure from the consulate. We conferred together, the captain and I, about the expediency of setting the police on the traces, if any were to be found, of our vanished friend, but it struck me that the good captain was singularly reticent and that there was something a little mysterious in a few points that he hinted at rather than expressed, so that, scrutinizing the affair carefully, 
I surmised that the intimacy of life on shipboard might have taught him more about the reverend gentleman than, for some reason or other, he deemed it prudent to reveal. At home, in our native country, I would have looked to the doctor's personal safety and left his reputation to take care of itself, knowing that the good fame of a thousand saintly clergymen would amply dazzle out any lamentable spot on a single brother's character. But in scornful and invidious England, on the idea that the credit of the sacred office was measurably entrusted to my discretion, I could not endure, for the sake of American doctors of divinity generally, that this particular doctor should cut an ignoble figure in the police reports of the English newspapers, except at the last necessity. The clerical body, I flatter myself, will acknowledge that I acted on their own principle. Besides, it was now too late. The mischief and violence, if any had been impending, were not of a kind which it requires the better part of a week to perpetrate, and to sum up the entire matter, I felt certain, from a good deal of somewhat similar experience, that, if the missing doctor still breathed this vital air, he would turn up at the consulate as soon as his money should be stolen or spent. Precisely a week after this reverend person's disappearance, there came to my office a tall, middle-aged gentleman in a blue military surtout, braided at the seams, but out at elbows, and as shabby as if the wearer had been bivouacking in it throughout a Crimean campaign. It was buttoned up to the very chin, except where three or four of the buttons were lost, nor was there any glimpse of a white shirt-collar illuminating the rusty black cravat. A grisly moustache was just beginning to roughen the stranger's upper lip. He looked disreputable to the last degree, but still had a ruined air of good society glimmering about him, like a few specks of polish on a sword-blade that has lain corroding in a mud-puddle. I took him to be some American marine officer, of dissipated habits, or perhaps a cashiered British major, stumbling into the wrong quarters through the unrectified bewilderment of last night's debauch. He greeted me, however, with polite familiarity, as though we had been previously acquainted, whereupon I drew coldly back, as sensible people naturally do, whether from strangers or former friends, when too evidently at odds with fortune, and requested to know who my visitor might be, and what was his business at the consulate. "'Am I then so changed?' he exclaimed, with a vast depth of tragic intonation and after a little blind and bewildered talk, behold, the truth flashed upon me. It was the doctor of divinity. If I had meditated a scene, or coup de théâtre, I could not have contrived a more effectual one than by this simple and genuine difficulty of recognition. The poor divine must have felt that he had lost his personal identity through the misadventures of one little week, and to say the truth, he did look as if, like Job, on account of his especial sanctity, he had been delivered over to the direst temptations of Satan, and proving weaker than the man of Uz, the arch-enemy had been empowered to drag him through Tophet, transforming him in the process from the most decorous of metropolitan clergymen into the rowdiest and dirtiest of disbanded officers. I never fathomed the mystery of his military costume, but conjectured that a lurking sense of fitness had induced him to exchange his clerical garments for this habit of a sinner, 
nor can I tell precisely into what pitfall, not more of vice than terrible calamity, had he precipitated himself, being more than satisfied to know that the outcasts of society can sink no lower than this poor, desecrated wretch had sunk. The opportunity, I presume, does not often happen to a layman of administering moral and religious reproof to a doctor of divinity, but finding the occasion thrust upon me, and the hereditary Puritan waxing strong in my breast, I deemed it a matter of conscience not to let it pass entirely unimproved. The truth is, I was unspeakably shocked and disgusted. Not, however, that I was then to learn that clergymen are made of the same flesh and blood as other people, and perhaps lack one small safeguard which the rest of us possess, because they are aware of their own peccability, and therefore cannot look up to the clerical class for the proof of the possibility of a pure life on earth with such reverential confidence as we are prone to do. But I remembered the innocent faith of my boyhood and the good old silver-headed clergyman, who seemed to me as much a saint then on earth as he is now in heaven, and partly for whose sake, through all these darkening years, I retain a devout, though not intact, nor unwavering respect for the entire fraternity. What a hideous wrong, therefore, had the backslider inflicted on his brethren, and still more on me, who much needed whatever fragments of broken reverence, broken not as concerned religion, but its earthly institutions and professors, it might yet be possible to patch into a sacred image. Should all pulpits and communion tables have thenceforth a stain upon them, and the guilty one go unrebuked for it? So I spoke to the unhappy man, as I never thought myself warranted in speaking to any other mortal, hitting him hard, doing my utmost to find out his vulnerable part, and prick him into the depths of it, and not without more effect than I had dreamed of or desired. No doubt the novelty of the doctor's reversed position, thus standing up to receive such a fulmination as the clergy have heretofore arrogated the exclusive right of inflicting, might give additional weight and sting to the words which I found utterance for. But there was another reason, which, had I in the least suspected, would have closed my lips at once, for his feeling morbidly sensitive to the cruel rebuke that I administered. The unfortunate man had come to me, laboring under one of the consequences of his riotous outbreak, in the shape of delirium tremens. He bore a hell within the compass of his own breast, all the torments of which blazed up with tenfold inveteracy when I thus took upon myself the devil's office of stirring up the red-hot embers. His emotions— as well as the external movement and expression of them by voice, countenance, and gesture, were terribly exaggerated by the tremendous vibration of nerves resulting from the disease. It was the deepest tragedy I ever witnessed. I know sufficiently from that one experience how a condemned soul would manifest its agonies, and for the future, if I have anything to do with sinners, I mean to operate upon them through sympathy and not rebuke. What had I to do with rebuking him? The disease, long latent in his heart, had shown itself in a frightful eruption on the surface of his life. That was all. Is it a thing to scold the sufferer for? To conclude this wretched story, the poor doctor of divinity, 
having been robbed of all his money in this little airing beyond the limits of propriety, was easily persuaded to give up the intended tour and return to his bereaved flock, who, very probably, were thereafter conscious of an increased unction in his soul-stirring eloquence, without suspecting the awful depths into which their pastor had dived in quest of it. His voice is now silent. I leave it to members of his own profession to decide whether it was better for him thus to sin outright, and so to be let into the miserable secret of what manner of man he was, or to have gone through life outwardly unspotted, making the first discovery of his latent evil at the judgment seat. It has occurred to me that his dire calamity, as both he and I regarded it, might have been the only method by which precisely such a man as himself, and so situated, could be redeemed. He has learned ere now how that matter stood. End of section 2